Um, I'm delighted to be here. We did have a wonderful lunchtime talk today. So for those of you who were uh, there at lunch, I hope you'll enjoy getting a little extended version of this this evening. I am a scientist. I'm an astronomer. I wear uh, several different hats, and one of them is working with this program at a scientific society, as you just heard, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, directing a program of dialogue on science, ethics, and religion, basically recognizing that religious groups and ethicists and scientists all have things, important things to say to one another about what's going on in science, scientific discovery, how it's being applied through technology and applied science, and whether or not the values of our population are being incorporated into decisions made about science and technology. So this, these are important decisions, important conversations. We talk about things like neuroscience, like uh, what is the role of your brain in the decision-making responsibility that you have? Or genetics, are you only a product of your genes? How much of the, your environment impacts who you are as a human being? And are you responsible for your decisions if, in fact, your choices are being made by your brain chemistry or your genetic predisposition? So, so these are questions that meld or bring together science and other aspects of our lives, our value systems, um, our understanding of who we are as human beings. There are questions of how we use science. Should we use science in ways, hopefully, that help people? But science has also been used many times throughout history in ways that were not helpful to everyone. In fact, were harmful to some people. So we still need a value system somehow that tells us how to use science and technology. And I think a place like Southeastern is a wonderful place to have these conversations. Where does science fit into the bigger picture of values that people have? How does faith fit into the picture. Um, and so there are all kinds of issues where science is important to modern life. And I like to start the conversations in a, in a church-based setting about science with not, you know, what are the troublesome issues? Where are the disagreements? You know, should I be comfortable with this or not? Is it relevant or not? As, rather, I like to start these conversations with a sense of awe and praise. And that's a little easier when you're an astronomer because there's a lot of wonderful things to see with our modern telescopes. So tonight I'm going to concentrate on what we're learning in the realm of astronomy and what kinds of questions that brings up, and use that as the foundation for a conversation of how discovery touches these bigger questions of human values and faith, okay? And so um, I'm here kind of representing myself, so I can share with you some of my personal uh, uh, thoughts on these matters as well. Okay, so we're going to talk for about 45 minutes here and then have a conversation with you. All right, sound good? So I have a lot to tackle in 45 minutes. Stars, galaxies, planets, and life, a universe of awe, challenge, and inspiration. So I think I'm going to start with the awe and inspiration part um, through the other pieces. So here, I don't know if we can turn down the lights at all, or does that mess up the... I don't know if you're recording this. Um, does it... Uh, okay. Some of this will look a lot better, especially the lights in front. Okay. Um, do you like that better? So you can, can, am I blocking? I'm probably blocking the view for a lot of you here, but yeah, uh, feel free to move if you can't see things. Um, this is one of my favorite astronomy images, which was taken with a camera that was put on the Hubble Space Telescope. 
uh, a few years ago. So are any of you familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope? I hope so. It's a, it's a telescope that's, I'll show you a picture of it, but it's actually in space and it is orbiting the Earth. In fact, during our time tonight, it will have gone all, all the way around the Earth um, at least once. It, it does a 97-minute orbital period. So it's whizzing around at thousands of miles an hour, but it's taking very sharp pictures as well because it's got very good gyroscopes, very good engineering, and it also uh, takes advantage of being above the Earth's atmosphere so that the light does not have to come through our turbulent atmosphere to get through the telescope. The atmosphere also blocks out some types of light. So here we get much sharper images, and that gives us the glorious chance to see things like this. This is a very dense cluster of stars in our own galaxy called Omega Centauri, and this cluster has uh, stars much closer together than our sun, which is also a star, is to its nearest neighbors. So uh, this is a very dense uh, region of stars, and I like it also because it's beautiful, right? You see the different different aspects of these stars, that they're not all the same. Um, what are some of the things you notice about these stars? Anybody? What colors do you see? All right. And, and why are they different colors? Christmas? <laughs> they do look like Christmas ornaments. Um, Whoever said temperature is, is correct, the outer temperature of the star can pretty much determine the, the color that we see. Uh, which ones are the hottest ones? Oh, that's supposed to be a trick question, and you got it right. Okay. Um, and what else do you notice about these stars? Some appear bigger than others or brighter than others, right? So... Um, so they are, in fact, different. Now, when you look at things in the night sky and something appears brighter than something else, you don't really know at first glance whether it's brighter because it's truly brighter or this is just closer. But in this case, all these stars are all in the same little bound cluster, so um, they're not that much... Uh, they're pretty much at the same distance from us, more or less. So, um, so that means the brighter ones in this picture really are brighter. So the point of this image is to show you how beautiful things are in the universe. I think this looks like a collection of gemstones um, and how different they are. So not all stars are the same, and, and a lot of times we don't take time to notice that. Our technology is enabling us to see things like this. We wouldn't be able to see it without the technology. And finally, there's a verse in Scripture in New Testament that says, star differs from star in splendor. Anybody know what that verse is? Well, since I don't remember where it is either, I'm going to take that as a given. <laughs> from Dr. Keithley, Professor Keithley wins the prize. Okay. All right, so... Star does differ from star in splendor, and you can see it right here. Now, if our sun were in this cluster, it would be like one of the smaller, uh, smaller yellowish stars in this group. We see a lot of beauty and awe. We see a lot of activity. Here's a region of stars, but it's, it's, it's surrounded by and bathed in gas and dust. And the reason is that these big, massive stars down toward the bottom of this image, which are bigger than our sun, have actually recently formed, astronomically speaking. And all a star is, is just a little pocket of gas in these clouds of gas and dust that happens to have enough 
mass in a small enough volume that the gravitational pull of that material in on itself is stronger than the tendency of the turbulence to disperse that same pocket of gas. And so when you get a pocket of overdense gas and it collapses under its own weight, if there's enough mass, the pressure in the middle of that ball of gas is enormous. And the pressure enables the hydrogen atoms, which is most of the gas is, is hydrogen in our universe. Hydrogen atoms will fuse together in a reaction that produces light. And so the starlight is basically a result of this fusion reaction going on in the middle of this clump of gas. Well, the starlight coming out, and there's also some winds that come off of the star, goes back out into the surrounding environment and starts blowing away the leftover gas in the surrounding cloud. And not only that, the light uh, is powerful enough from big stars to ionize the gas, which is what makes it colorful. So when we see, astronomers see what we call a nebula, this kind of bright, gaseous feature, we know that star formation is active and recent because before long, that, that gas will be blown away and all will be left is stars. So there's beauty and there's activity going on here. This is my own field of research for my own doctoral work was looking at star formation buried in regions that we can't see with our visible light, but we can see with infrared telescopes and radio telescopes that can see deep into these clouds where the stars are forming but haven't even turned on yet. They're just heating up. So we use different kinds of tools to study the universe now. We use them together. We use space telescopes like the one on top here. We use telescopes on the ground. These are the Keck telescopes on the top of what we hope is a dormant volcano in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> um, would be quite, quite spectacular if it blew, though, wouldn't it? But uh, I'm not wishing that on those telescopes. And on this side is an example of radio telescopes, uh, an array of them in South America. We need these different kinds of tools to give us different kinds of information. And I think of it kind of like a symphony orchestra where the conductor uses different kinds of instruments to pull out different features of the composition, and together you get a beautiful piece of music well, we astronomers, typically when you read a professional astronomy paper, they will refer to data taken some from this telescope, some from that one, some from space, some from the ground, to get the fuller picture of whether, what we want to learn about a galaxy or planets or whatever. Some telescopes see visible light like our eyes see. Some telescopes see light that our eyes cannot see, but it is very important for understanding what's going on in the universe. X-rays, gamma rays, infrared light. Uh, ultraviolet light, radio waves, uh, these are all important. Uh, and some see small fields of view in great detail. Some say big, wide swaths of the sky in less detail. We need them all for different types of scientific goals. And these tools are, are enabled by technology. So the growth of optics and technology over uh, human history, and in particular the last few decades, is opening up our eyes to a universe we never knew before. We're also discovering things that are not trans transmitting radiation, even these other kinds of light, but are transmitting information in a very different way. So um, Einstein and others uh, in that epoch of time in the 20th century predicted this idea that if there are accelerations of mass, they will produce another type of information that's transferred across space not radiation, 
but gravitational waves, a disturbance of space-time that passes through space. But it was predicted that while these things might exist with any masses that are accelerating in space, we wouldn't be able to detect it, or it would be very difficult. The most, the biggest disturbances in space-time that we can imagine are black holes, which are the collapsed remains of masses that have scrunched in on themselves, black holes that actually accelerate around each other and merge. That would create an enormous distortion in space-time that would create perhaps a detectable pulse through space. We've had detectors on the ground for decades trying to detect any kind of passing gravitational wave going through. And finally, a few years ago, for the first time ever, gravitational waves coming from outside of our galaxy were detected passing through. And it was determined through the modeling of the physics involved that the detection, the signature measured, must have been caused by merging black holes, these merging very condensed objects. These can be collapsed stars. And in fact, we think many stars are in binary pairs. And when they burn out, some of the more major stars turn into black holes and eventually their orbits decay and they will merge. So this should happen quite frequently. Or it can be even the centers of whole galaxies where you have supermassive black holes, the repository of many stars, many black holes coming together. And if two galaxies merge and their cores merge, you could get an enormous, dis enormous disturbance in space-time. What you see on the right here are the real signatures that were detected um, through the LIGO detector on the ground a few years ago of a system, a, a pair of merging black holes. On the left is a computer simulation of this pair of merging black holes um, as they get tighter and tighter in their binary orbit and eventually merge. So information is traveling across the universe in ways uh, that involve light we cannot see, that involves gravitational waves we don't feel. But if we have the right detectors, the right technology, and understand the physics better, we are learning an enormous amount of what's going on in our universe in very intriguing ways. Some of you may have read that we've actually taken a picture of a black hole. Any of you heard the story lately? Um, now, you will ask, you should ask, as I would, well, I thought you can't see a black hole. How can you take a picture of a black hole? I thought that's the definition of a black hole, is you can't see it. But it turns out that a black hole being a very condensed, uh, very condensed mass, maybe a dead star that's collapsed, um, while the gravitational field around that black hole is so strong, it actually distorts space around on itself, uh, that, that you cannot see light that comes from near that or around that black hole, it'll get turned in on itself because of the distortion of space. That's why it's black. But right around that region, light can, in fact, uh, pass. It'll be distorted in certain ways. And so what you're seeing here is the just exactly what was predicted if you image right around the edge of a black hole and some of that light is actually beamed forward through the distortions of space around that black hole. So that's what you're seeing here is the light that's distorted and emitted right around the edge region of a black hole, um, as well as the darkness of the black, the silhouette of the black hole itself. All right. Um, here's an image showing you the development of technology over the years where 
Um, astronauts over time and time again have gone up to one of these space telescopes that's in space, the Hubble telescope, and it's been operating for 30 years as of this year. This, this year is Hubble's 30th birthday, so it's older than most of you, but a lot younger than me. Um, but Hubble has been kept fresh. It's still at, a, at the peak of scientific productivity right now because astronauts have returned to it time and time again to put in new instruments or repair things up in space. So this is the inside of the space shuttle cockpit when the astronauts went up to Hubble the last time in 2009. And you can see the Hubble telescope through the window there on the top. But one of the astronauts brought with him a replica of Galileo's telescope. So this is Galileo Galilei's telescope from 400 years ago. And you can just see visually here how the improvement in optics and technology, first the innovation of Galileo to point a telescope in space and make recorded observations of what he saw, changed everything. He really recorded the motions of bodies in space that really informed us about orbits and fed into the whole idea of a heliocentric solar system and even that there are moons orbiting other planets. That technology has improved over the centuries to the point now where we have telescopes like Hubble and these professional telescopes that are revealing to us billions of galaxies outside our own that Galileo had no idea about. And also, we have spaceships to take us up there. So um, here's just an example of how the rapid advancement of human technology is enabling us to see things and learn things about the universe that we would never have known before. And you see, this knowledge informs not only science, but it informs the, the other ways we think about ourselves as humans as well. It informs art. It informs literature. It informs our imaginations, it informs theology, it informs our understanding of who we are as humans, it informs philosophy. All right, so the universe, one lesson I want to make sure you leave today with is that the universe is beautiful. I hope you've already seen some of those things. We have these beautiful juxtapositions of, of stars, uh, clusters of stars recently formed, lighting up the surrounding leftover gas around them. This is one of my favorite nebulae. Um, this is a region that you should uh, recognize. Anybody know what this region of the sky is? Orion. Now, this is a, t a picture taken with a telescope on the ground that gets a wide field of view, so you see a lot of detail here. And uh, there's a famous uh, constellation here that is usually represented as a hunter. But in other cultures, it's represented in different ways. I like, when I grew up looking up at this on the farm that I grew up on in northern Arkansas, and I could see the night sky, and I thought it looked like a kite. So I like the kite here and the kite's tail. I learned that um, indigenous cultures in North America called this constellation the winter maker because the winter maker showed up in winter, brightest and highest. So I like that. But there are two, uh, three, I think, very famous regions in this constellation. One is Rigel, a hot blue star down here. One is Betelgeuse up here. Familiar with that star? Now, if you are paying attention, you may have heard some news stories about this star recently because this star is a very bright star. It's a red giant star. It means it's basically almost running out of a stable amount of hydrogen fuel in the core 
And as it becomes unstable, it brightens up, its outer atmosphere expands. That's why it becomes red and bright. And eventually it will explode as a supernova explosion, as massive stars do. But we don't know when that's going to happen exactly. It could be any time within the next, you know, tens of thousands of years or more. Um, but the excitement is that over the past few weeks and months, this star has gotten recognizably dimmer. I mean, even with your eyes, if you're paying attention, you go up and look at night and you see that that star is a lot dimmer than it was last year. Okay, so what's going on? Nothing happens that fast in astronomy unless there's something very active. So speculation is, is this star about to blow? Um, and it could. Um, it would be really interesting. The super, if it goes off in a supernova, we're far enough away that it shouldn't hurt us, but it will be a very, very bright feature in the sky, and that will be uh, super cool to see. And it would also help us understand a lot about the dynamics of what's produced in stars, because we know that the, the, little, the fusion factories that stars are produce not only hydrogen, uh, helium, as hydrogen fuses together in the core, but subsequent reactions produce things that we need for life and planets like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, and the supernova helps disperse that stuff. So we want to know more of the details of that, and if Betelgeuse blows, we can study it in great detail. It'll be right there in front of our noses. But it turns out Betelgeuse is kind of variable in its brightness anyway, and so most astronomers are kind of at the, of the attitude that this is probably a natural variation right now um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's getting ready to blow right away, unfortunately. But, uh, but anyway, you'll notice that. The third region I want to point out here is this region down here. All these stars are out in the central region. If you look at them closely, even with a backyard telescope, they look a little fuzzy. And we call fuzzy things nebulae in astronomy. But if we zoom in with the Hubble Space Telescope on this region right here, we won't see this big field of view, but we'll see a tiny field of view with more detail. So we're going to look right at that region, small field of view with a telescope that gets more detail, and we see this, all right? So that's the Orion Nebula. And again, it's one of these regions where actually a whole bunch of massive stars have recently formed and are ionizing the surrounding gas. And if you look at this region with infrared and radio telescopes, as I've done in my own research, you can see behind it, where the gas isn't lit up yet because the stars aren't turned on yet, but you see the heated clumps of gas that we call protostars that are actively accreting material and, and, and on the way to becoming stars. So there's beauty, there's activity. Here's another one of these beautiful nebulae and another one. Um, this one is an infrared light, so you can kind of see more of the dusty, wispy character of the horsehead nebula, which I think looks more like a dragon than a horse. Um, some people think it looks like a tapeworm, you know. <laughs> um, all of these nebulae of uh, gas and dust fill uh, the volume of what we call galaxies. So a galaxy is a lot of gas, dust, and the stars within that are kind of held together by mutual gravity. So they have a lot of motion, rotation, and turbulence, so that keeps everything from just scrunching together. But there's enough mass to hold things together in this one combined entity. So this is an example of what we call a spiral galaxy. 
there's so many stars in this galaxy, especially in the middle, that the light all just kind of blends together. And we think our own galaxy that our sun is in is in a spiral kind of like this. And our sun would be a star kind of along one of the spiral arms. We can't get all the way out far enough to look back and take a selfie of the Milky Way. Um, so we have to understand our own galaxy by kind of looking around from within and making the best uh, best guess we can. You can see other galaxies in the background here, and I just think this is beautiful, uh, beautiful spiral galaxy. And you can see galaxies in different orientations as we look outside of our own galaxy. Some of them edge on, uh, where you can actually see how much dust and gas is along the plane of the galaxy. Some of them more face on, where you see more of the features and the starlight. Um, if you look in ultraviolet light, so our eyes can't see this, but telescopes like the Hubble telescope can pick up energetic ultraviolet light. And if you look at galaxies or parts of galaxies in the ultraviolet, you see more of the, the lit up energetic regions where stars are still forming. So a lot of all these purplish regions around the spiral arms are hot spots for star formation. So the next theme here is that our universe is active. It's not stagnant. I've already mentioned some things, but let's pull in closer to our own solar system, to into our solar system and see what's going on there. Um, here's some recent images of two uh, very nice neighbors of ours. Um, we've got Saturn on the left and Mars on the right. And um, they are uh, beautiful in their own right. When you look at these planets over time, you find out that they're not stagnant. They're changing. So um, here's Mars when it was in a what we call an opposition position, which means the Earth is basically between Mars and the Sun. So it's the closest Mars ever gets to us. So every couple of years, Mars is in that arrangement with Earth. And so we try to take good pictures because Mars is big in the sky. And so here's one from 2016, and here's one from 2018. Same telescope. Same distance from the Earth, they're not the same. Why do you think they look different? All good, all good answers. Um, the main one I want to point out here is a dust storm. So in 2018, Mars was having a global dust storm. And that basically blurred our ability to see some of the, the different features of high plateaus and low plateaus on the surface of Mars. So the weather changes on Mars. Same on Jupiter. Beautiful image of Jupiter, but as we look at it over time uh, and with different eyes, we see um, different features. First of all, Jupiter's a gas giant. Um, it really is, is made mostly of layers of gas. There may be a solid core buried way down within. And these gas layers are stormy and turbulent. The, the great red spot there is a giant hurricane. It's shrinking over time. As we've observed it over the last three decades with the Hubble telescope, we see that that big hurricane is getting smaller. New ones are cropping up. Um, when we look in ultraviolet light, this crops up. Anybody know what that energetic light is that shows up in ultraviolet? It's the northern lights, basically, right? It's the aurora. So, so just like on Earth, our magnetic fields have an interaction with charged particles in the atmosphere and create auroras on planet Earth, Jupiter has a strong magnetic field. We can't see it unless we look with ultraviolet eyes. All right, 
more of these majestic regions where stars have formed and the, re the, the energetic uh, uh, winds and radiation blow away the less dense gas, leave behind the denser gas for a little bit longer and the wakes behind them, which can create these pillar-like structures of dense gas, we see that invisible light. But if we want to see what's going on in those pillars, we look with infrared eyes. So here's visible light on the left, infrared light on the right, same region. This is the Eagle Nebula, famous region. And yet with infrared eyes on the right, you see a lot more detail. You can see through the dusty veil of stars. You can see uh, into those columns of dust and gas where you see hot spots, especially at the tips of those columns where new stars, lower mass stars are still forming. It takes them longer to form. And you see a lot more stars in the whole image. So uh, different kinds of eyes give us different kinds of information. Back to our wonderful cluster of stars. Uh, it's beautiful, but it it's more helpful to see it in context because this is not what we see when we look out at the, on the night sky. So let me pull out to a different image. This is a picture taken with a telescope on the ground looking toward the center of our Milky Way galaxy. So you see a lot of gas and dust across the center of this crowded region, you see a lot of bright stars. And in fact, some of these objects that look like bright stars are not single objects at all. They're actually clusters of stars. So we're going to zoom in from this telescope image taken with a telescope that has a wide field of view into this Centaurus constellation. Look at one of those objects in more detail with a telescope that sees more detail. And so you see that this is actually a cluster of stars and then transition over to the Hubble Space Telescope image where you can actually see down into that familiar image, all right? So you see that context matters, right? If you look at things with a different perspective, you actually get a different kind of information. Anybody wanna do that again? Is that a yes or no? All right, we'll do it quickly. Whoops, come on, there you go. All right. I don't like that violent constellation, but um, you move in. What you thought was a star when you used one kind of telescope actually turns out to be a globular cluster when you use another kind of telescope. And then if you want to see the individual stars, you use still another kind of telescope uh, to see the detail and to see the variety therein. Old stars disperse their material. So here's an old star that's releasing in its outer atmosphere, not in an explosion, but in uh, basically what we call a, 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 a planetary nebula, although it has nothing to do with planets. But it's, expe it's expelling its outer atmosphere, as old, unstable stars tend to do. That's not only beautiful, but it's also functional. It's, again, dispersing the material that's been created into the star, into the interstellar medium. Most stars, like our sun actually end their lives in this way rather than exploding as a supernova. But some stars have spectacularly exploded as a supernova in our own galaxy. This is the, the, the debris of a star that exploded a thousand years ago as a supernova. Uh, it was seen by sky watchers around the world, uh, uh, including in particular in China. The, the, the sky watchers there recorded the brightening of this particular star. And we're still looking at the debris of this explosion as it moves out. So this is basically the innards of the star showing up in different colors here that different filters of the Hubble telescope enable us to see. So we know there are heavier things like nitrogen and oxygen and carbon produced in this star and in the explosion itself that are being dispersed. And this is now called the Crab Nebula 
Buried down in here is a remnant star called a neutron star. It's beautiful too. We can look at the, the remnants of an exploded star. Here's another one uh, in this purplish wispy material, but spread it out into a spectrum. So a spectrograph takes the light and like a prism spreads it out into its constituent colors so that a spectroscopist can look at the pattern of light and see what kinds of uh, uh, elements and molecules are creating that light. And in this case, this supernova remnant looked at through a spectrograph gives you this spectrum where the colors are on the, the bottom axis and the brightness is on the y-axis. And you see at most colors or most frequencies, there's not much brightness, not much light. But at a few particular frequencies or colors, there's a lot of brightness. And a spectroscopist can look at that pattern and say, oh, that's oxygen and that's carbon. That means that this star, when it exploded, is dispersing oxygen and carbon around into the interstellar medium. Um, we also see that this heavier material in the interstellar medium enables stars to form that have solid particulates around. So here's our Orion Nebula again. But there's some objects that you may not have noticed before, and I've blown up a couple of them here for you to see. These are young stars still trying to form in this turbulent environment, but they're surrounded by dusty disks. You see one of them there kind of face on, one of them up here kind of edge on. These dusty disks around these very young stellar objects are about the diameter of our solar system. Okay. And they're made out of solid particulates, carbon, silicon, these kinds of things. Um, so we now know that stars in this epoch, actually all of them that we see are forming with these dusty disks around them. And these are planet zones, right? Planet formation zones. So we're, we're, this is a hot topic in astronomy. Here's another disky, dusty disk region where... It's been observed using millimeter wavelength telescopes in South America, where you can really see the heat light from that, uh, from those, uh, from the dust rings strongly. You can't actually see the central star here as much as you can see the surrounding disk, and you can tell there's at least planetesimals probably forming there, creating that ring pattern that you see in the disk. We know planets are there around other stars now because we've actually discovered thousands of them within the last few years. This is a real system, but it's an artist's impression because we don't have a good enough telescope yet to take lovely pictures of planets around other stars. But we are detecting them. So this system has a, a star with six planets in tight orbits. These systems are called exoplanet systems. These are planets outside of our solar system. And a few decades ago, we didn't know of any planets orbiting stars other than our sun. Now we know of thousands of them, um, and we know they're common. And finally, uh, in astronomy, I just want to mention to you that the universe is enormous in space and time and content. So I mentioned to you what a galaxy looks like. But now, oh, this is our own Milky Way. Like I said, we can't get all the way out of it, but here's an artist's conception of our Milky Way galaxy with lots of stars in the middle, lots of stars along the spiral arms. Our sun is along one of these local arms. We call the local arm or the, or the Orion arm, but there are other arms. And our planets are orbiting our star right here. So that's where we are right now, okay? Um, but there are lots of other galaxies. In fact, um, we now know there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies, each with billions of stars. So this is kind of mind-blowing, right? So... So the, the deep field here 
um, is an example. One of my, this is probably my favorite image ever from the Hubble Space Telescope. It was taken by pointing the telescope to a region of the sky that didn't have any nearby stars to kind of drown out the image. And if you just collect light for days upon days, you see, uh, you get this, which is basically this collection of smudges of light. But these smudges of light are not stars in our galaxy. They are other galaxies, even the smaller, little, tiny, looks like static in the background. These are galaxies that can contain billions of stars. If our Milky Way were in this image, if we could get far enough away from our own galaxy to look back, it would just look like one of these spiral smudges here. So this is just one tiny little field of view in the universe. If you could extrapolate this around the whole sky, uh, and we do look in different directions and see pretty much the same kind of thing, this is the universe we live in. Um, it is mind-boggling. So the universe is enormous, hundreds of billions of galaxies, each with billions, sometimes hundreds of billions of stars. And not only that, but these, these galaxies are not all at the same distance from us. So one of the specialties in astronomy is trying to determine distances. It's not easy. But if you figure out the distances to each one of these objects, some of them are closer than others. And it's taken time for the light to get to us, right? So astronomy is always like a time machine. Even if you look at the sun, you're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago uh, because it takes time for light to get here. Some galaxies are millions of light years away from us. Some are billions of light years away from us. So you can kind of line them up in terms of their uh, distances. In fact, you can even kind of pretend to fly through. Let's do a little fly through here. Um, uh, if you notice something changing, it's not because you're dreaming. We're actually going through uh, this deep field based on our best estimate of the distances of the various galaxies involved. And so the first galaxies you encounter are the nearer by ones, um, which means we're seeing them as they were more recently in time. And you see different kinds of galaxies. Some of them are spiral. Some of them are more spherical. But as we get farther into this deep field image, we're looking at galaxies that are farther away. They're fainter for that reason. But it's taken longer for the light to get to us, so we're seeing them from farther back in time. And in fact, they are different. You see that they are getting smaller, a little rattier looking. Um, they're not as well formed, and there are not as many of them. And that last point is not because they aren't there, but because we're getting to the point where we can't see them all. These galaxies are actually caught up in the expansion of space. Their light, as it travels through that expanded space, gets reddened, and to the point where the most distant ones are redshifted into infrared light, and we need future telescopes like the Webb telescope to see the most distant, the earliest infant galaxies. Um, with some telescopes, we can actually look around the sky and see the remnant radiation from the very dawn of creation, from the very beginning of time, which is what this map shows. So our telescopes, as they get better over time, you see from top to bottom here is an example of how telescopes or instruments in them are getting more sensitive over time, are seeing fainter and fainter objects, which means you can see farther out, which is what that, those arrows are showing. Well, that's equivalent in terms of looking at faint galaxies to looking farther back in time. So if the beginning of creation is off to the right, 
um, we're seeing some of the earliest galaxies in, in time, and we can compare them to galaxies closer to us in space and time and see if they're different. And in fact, they are. If we line them up, we see that the most distant galaxies, the earliest galaxies are smaller. They haven't had generations of stars come and go. They don't have as diverse material inside. Galaxies closer to us in space and time are more like the Milky Way. They have richer... Uh, uh, compositions because the stars have produced more of these heavier elements. And in fact, what we see with our time machine is that the universe has developed, matured, changed, providing elements needed for conditions for life to, thr to thrive on at least one planet. So does this indicate that the universe has a purpose? Um, now, I have just moved from science to a philosophical question. Did you catch that? People come, scientists who agree on what we're discovering in science come to different conclusions about how to interpret this philosophically, religiously, theologically. Um, Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg looked at all this and said, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. All right. There's not a right or a wrong answer to this. Um, so in fact, there was a big project where uh, the, the John Templeton Foundation asked a lot of leading scholars the question, does the universe have a purpose? Now, these are leading scientists, leading theologians, leading historians, leading philosophers around the world. Here's some of them here. They all pretty much agree on the scientific picture that we're, that we're understanding through astronomy and cosmology, but do you think they all had the same answer to the question, does the universe have a purpose? No. So you see there are one-word answers here, um, but more interesting is to read their one-page essays on why they gave that answer, and you can find this if you go to this Big Questions Online archive, um, but I find this fascinating. Um, some examples, uh, uh, Professor uh, Atkins, um, from, um, I think he's from Oxford, uh, said, no, uh, in the absence of evidence, the only reason to suppose that the universe would have a purpose is sentimental, wishful thinking, which underlies all religion and is an unreliable tool for the discovery of truth of any kind. All right? That's one response. Professor John Hott of Georgetown University said, does the universe have a purpose? Yes. The fact that we can even ask such a question at all suggests um, such an affirmative answer. All right. What about Jane Goodall? Anybody know who Jane Goodall is? Um, very famous uh, uh, primate scientist. She says, certainly. She says, of course, science typically scoffs at any belief in a god and tells us that we have a god gene and that the tendency toward religious belief is simply part of our biological makeup, as inevitable as the universal human smile. And she says, and yet, even if this were so, we would still need to ask why. Why should we be programmed to believe in a god? Why are the laws of physics designed to make life ever more complex? And where did those laws come from? All right. So there's, there's interesting questions about this. You have a speaker coming to campus before long, Professor Dennis Alexander. When's, when's he coming? March 31st. March 31st. Um, who is himself a, a biologist and has, he has, is the emeritus director of something called the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge, UK. 
And he's written a book, Is There Purpose in Biology? Uh, which I think is, is a very interesting question to pose. Let's talk a few minutes about the perspective of faith. Um, I'm a Christian, most foundational part of my life. So this is very important to me, as I'm sure it is to, to all of you. Can science and religion both address truth? And how does a biblical view of the cosmos relate to a scientific view of the cosmos? And I think one way of helping to get started in this conversation is to remember that science is wonderful. I love science, but it's, it's basically designed as a tool to answer certain kinds of questions, questions of how things work, how the, the, the natural forces of nature work, and when in terms of natural time did things happen, and why in terms of a physical cause and effect. But science is really not a good tool to answer bigger meta questions like capital W, why? Is there a purpose? Is there a God? What does God want? How should we live? Um, likewise, you could say that maybe scripture is a wonderful tool, a gift from God to help us understand the meta questions, but he's also given us the gift of science to answer some of the detailed questions about how the natural world works. So this is using the right tool to address the right kinds of questions is helpful. I like what Sir John Polkinghorne said. He, was, he is a physicist, and he became an Anglican priest along the way, written wonderful books on how science and theology and faith and prayer relate. He said that science and theology are both concerned with the search for truth. In consequence, they complement each other rather than contrasting each other. In other words, they don't have to be at war. Science and theology can actually complement each other so, of course, these two disciplines focus on, a different, on different dimensions of truth, but they share this common conviction that there is truth to be sought. And it really is quite interesting. I, I did my education at secular scientific campuses that were known to be scientific powerhouses. And in the Christian fellowship groups that I was very active in, most of the students in those Christian fellowship groups were the scientists on campus, right? Because there was this idea that there is such a thing as truth, and there is a right and a wrong answer. And of course, these are you know different, as Polkinghorne says, different aspects of truth. Uh, but there is this idea that it is truth seeking is worth doing, worth the effort. There there are answers, um, and so in that sense, the way science scientists think is complementary to. Uh, I think, a, a biblical way of thinking as well. Some questions we could ask, and I realize I'm over my 45 minutes here, but if you'll just give, indulge me a few more minutes, because I just want to touch on a few of these concepts, and then we'll get into discussion. What could the universe tell us about the nature of God? Anything? Um, I think we have to be careful. Um, I, I don't think that, I don't like the idea, actually, I'm, I'm going to stop here for a second of thinking that we can point a telescope and a microscope at something and say, that proves God. Or, 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 or some of the, I think, uh, the, the worst mistakes or trouble Christians get into is they look at some natural phenomenon and say, look, we can't understand how this works. And so it must mean that God has intervened and that proves God because we can't explain X, Y, and Z. And that's called the God of the gaps argument. Anybody heard of God of the gaps? It means that, that, that the God that you're talking about is a God that kind of jumps in where 
regular processes of nature aren't sufficient. And yet when we, science advances and can explain those things a little bit better, then what happens to that God? Then that God is no longer needed. That God is kind of ridiculed and, and, and lost. Um, instead, I think a better approach is to, and a more biblical approach, is to say that all of creation is the responsibility of God. God is responsible for everything. And if science is working to help us understand the natural laws and it is explaining things well, that's wonderful evidence of being congruent with our understanding of God. It's not proof. Um, I don't think science can prove God, but I do think if you are a believer, then from astronomical observation and resulting inference, I don't mean scientific inference, I mean philosophical inference, from this faith perspective, you can learn something about the nature of God. In fact, the Psalms say the heavens declare the glory of God. So to me, when I look at these things in the universe, I would say that God appears to be powerful and creative, a creator and lover of beauty, uh, very patient, allowing the universe to unfold, to become habitable for life, faithful. The fundal, fundamental physical laws are not changing from one second to the next. We have uh, consequences for our actions. And yet within these physical laws, there is freedom. Uh, uh, we have, we've learned this at a very basic level with quantum theory and in, in physics. Um, chaos theory as well comes into this. This allows for cause and effect, for choices to matter, um, even for things like pain to exist. Uh, I, can, I believe we could infer that God gives and enables life, um, a fruitful universe, and one who loves, enabling us to investigate and appreciate and understand the magnificent cosmos of which we are a part. Um, you could come up with your own list, but I think these are some inferences one could take from looking at the universe. Now, you could also look at more. It's not all beautiful, right? You look at some of the cosmic trouble, uh, um, plate tectonics that create wonderful things on our planet for refreshing the atmosphere, but also create earthquakes. You know, what, what do you do with things like that? So there are more difficult questions, but here are some things. I think when we look at Scripture and looking at the Bible as a whole, you could find some themes that God is responsible for everything, the heavens and everything we find in nature, and that nature gives glory to God. And I would say that, therefore, studying nature gives glory to God. So I'm, I'm pushing a little bit here, but I think that you could say that God is pleased with discovery and with good stewardship of creation. Um, what about when there are differences of opinion between what scientists think is happening and what the Bible seems to say? And I don't have time to go into that today, nor is it my expertise, but I will say that one helpful model that some have used is this two books model where God is responsible for everything. And in God's view, there's no conflict between nature um, on the left there and scripture there on the right. These are all revelations of God's nature and God's will and God's word in various, in different ways. And yet the human enterprise of interpreting nature, which is called science, and the human enterprise of interpreting scripture, which is called theology or biblical interpretation, is something we hope God is helping us do well, but it's not perfect. And we're growing and learning more and more in both of these realms. And science influences worldview and politics and all kinds of things. Biblical interpretation influences church traditions, theology. And so there can be disagreement down in this realm um, as to 
whether an interpretation of scripture is the most correct, and if that seems to conflict with what we're learning in science, is it the science that's wrong? Is it the biblical interpretation that's wrong? Are they both wrong? Are they both right, but we're just seeing it in, in, a, in, in, in perhaps a way that's unhelpful? That conversation continues. I hope it's going on here in a, in a positive way. And I think it can when we realize that we're down here learning in both of these realms, knowing that in God's view, these things are not in conflict and, and someday we will understand things um, uh, completely in his presence. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Most of the time in scripture, when, when hev- the heavens are mentioned, they're mentioned in praise. So scripture isn't fighting about scientific issues and the age of the universe or this or that or the other. The, the scripture, science wasn't even invented yet when scripture was put Put down. Scripture talks about the natural world and the heavens in terms of bringing praise to God, and I think that's a good place to start in our conversations in the church. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And this psalm goes on to say that without using words and speech, somehow people all over the world get a message. And so I just hope we aren't drowning out that message with our city lights and, and our distractions. And of course, of course, for Christians, there's something more. Um, the whole cosmos is conceived and upheld by a living word, a person, um, the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now that we as astronomers actually believe that the dust of which we are made has been forged in stars, and we're really connected to the universe, and Jesus himself was incarnate in an amazing universe, connected with the very universe that he upholds. Um, I think that I have to sadly quit, but um, um, let's um, respond to this by giving praise, by being a good steward for the earth as part of the universe and all of its inhabitants, the animals as well, and let's continue to have a positive positive attitude toward exploration and learning because we have a lot more to learn. We want to learn about all these exoplanets. Could there be life out there? What do you think? Uh, We want to learn about dark matter and dark energy, the mysteries of the universe. We want to use this knowledge to help people um, uphold them. See what you're missing? Um, (laughs) I do believe the universe inspires. Um, Here's my colleague, uh, Gladys Kober, who's an astronomer and uh, astrophysical data expert. But she takes her annual leave as a Christian, her vacation time, and does mission trips. And here she's visiting an orphanage in a country where, at least for these kids, their parents have died as martyrs. So these kids have, have, have had trauma in their lives. And in this orphanage, these kids are fortunate. They have enough clothing. They have enough food. They are loved. But what they want to hear from Gladys when she comes is about space, Like their spirits are uplifted to hear about stars and galaxies and what we're learning in astronomy. They want to become astronauts. Um, Here's a visually impaired student who's understanding the beauty of the universe through touch, through tactile encoded images of galaxies and planets and nebulae. Um, So uh, we can be inspired in many ways. Um, uh, I hope we're inspired to take care of planet Earth. This is a picture from the space shuttle after servicing the Hubble telescope a few years ago, looking back toward planet Earth as the sun is rising and you're seeing the, the edge of the planet Earth and the wispy atmosphere being backlit there. And it shows us how beautiful and fragile our own Earth's atmosphere appears to be. 
and I hope inspires us to take care of this creation of which we are to be good stewards. If you're interested in this dialogue about Christian faith and about science and ethics, I have a lot of resources that I recommend here. You can take a picture of this if you want, if it's helpful. But I particularly um, uh, uh, like this organization. The American Scientific Affiliation is a network of Christians in scientific fields or who are interested in science. And, and it's a wonderful resource there, ASA3.org. I'll leave the others up there and just say, praise God for the universe And let's praise God for the gift of science that helps us to explore and understand the wonders of creation. Thank you very much. Um, So let's go through some of the ones uh, that um, are being asked. One that's come up, you know, would you share just a little bit about your spiritual journey? Yep, sure. So my personal journey is one of... um, is in fact a, a journey is the right word for that. Um, so I I grew up in rural Arkansas on a cattle ranch. I didn't know any scientists. Uh, we weren't near any university. I never I didn't imagine being in this kind of career. But I did love nature. I loved wandering around the forests and looking up at the night sky. And I think that set the foundation for an interest in science, which is a study of nature. But I also grew up in a Christian family and um, and, and a church where I learned about the love of God and, and the love of Christ from a young age. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and so uh, I, I was a believer since childhood. I, I don't, uh, you know, remember ever not being a believer, but I do remember the day that I was baptized as a child. And I remember, you know, during my growing up teenage years, hearing some sermons and things that made me realize that, that being a Christian meant that I wasn't all about living for myself anymore. It's living for others, for God. And, and um, that whatever I ended up doing in life, it would be not for me, but for God. And God would have me being doing it for others. So, so um, that's kind of a, a simple way, I think, of describing my, my faith journey as a young person. And then for the rest of my life, it's been, how do I live out this faith in new contexts? Because Going away from a small town to the big city to go to college, new context. Going to university, new context. Having new challenges, you know, studying science, new new context. Um, Going to graduate school, working. I worked in the federal government for years and years. I have uh, worked with different kinds of different people from different cultures. I've had, you know, gone through different stages of life as we all do. So, so my my faith journey is is. Um, you know, less about some dramatic conversion as it is about reconnecting time and time again, hopefully continually, with God to to uh, to be guided in how to be a faithful disciple um, in different aspects of life. So, uh, one of the que- next questions that, that I think it, it kind of fits with the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people of science have said they they feel almost like a fish out of water uh, in churches, many times in an evangelical context. Uh, how can churches most effectively minister to people that are in the scientific fields or the STEM, science, STEM fields? Great question. So churches can either embrace science as something that God 
uh, would bless if, if science is used well, or can make it seem like science is an enemy, or can make it seem like science is irrelevant <laughs> to life. And so depending upon the atmosphere within a church, it can either encourage people to go into science-related fields or make them wary and afraid to, or make them seem like it's irrelevant to ministry. And for people who are already in scientific fields, can make them feel like either church is kind of irrelevant to their daily life and, and their calling, or that church is even hostile to it, or at least disinterested. So I think there are several things that can be done. One is to help people realize that many scientists throughout history have been people of faith. Uh, so many scientists that we rely on for our, our modern understanding of, of the world in scientific terms, many scientists were motivated to go into that field because of their deep reverence for God. And so they saw, they saw their science as a way of living out faithfully their love of God. And that's true even today. Um, I, have, I work with colleagues in, in my science field from across the spectrum of, of beliefs, and we're all curious about the truths that science can help us find about the universe and so forth. Some of my colleagues are not religious believers at all. Some of them are religious believers, but in other faiths. And some are Christians like myself, um, or even Christians unlike myself in other traditions. Um, we're all united by our curiosity about what we're studying. And that tends to uh, dominate and enrich any relationship that we have. So, so Science does not, is not necessarily a hostile place for faith. You might get that idea because some of the popularizers out there love to build on this idea of conflict. And that happens for people who are not believers when they kind of sell that. Uh, anybody, any of you familiar with some of these books and big names who, who really try to talk about, uh, um, in a very hostile way, religion, how science, religion is an enemy of science? Well, even within the church, we have some some vo influential voices who basically make it seem as though you need to take a stand that science is secular and, and, and is basically something to uh, be wary of, and, and, and there needs to be some kind of a conflict theory. There doesn't need to be, if we think of all creation as God's and science as a tool to help us understand the details. Yes, there's going to be some difficult questions coming up about how to interpret this kind of science. What does that mean in terms of what it means to be human? How do we relate it to this or that scriptural passage? Yes, there are good questions, but these are good questions. These are the kinds of questions we should be embracing in the church and making science a welcome part of our conversation. Because you see, we can use scientific knowledge to glorify God in many ways, to cause people to worship. Bringing science into the context of a worship service is a powerful thing. Showing images from biology or astronomy in the context of enriching our understanding of the power of God can be a very powerful way of worship. We can use practical outcomes of scientific knowledge to serve others in richer and more meaningful ways. Mission work can be informed by having better scientific background or understanding of what we're trying to do. Um, if you're trying to bring more water to water-impoverished countries and you don't understand the science of hydrology, you're not going to do a very good job. If you're trying to help feed the world's people and you don't understand the current conversations about pros and cons of genetically modified foods, you're not going to do a very good informed job of that kind of ministry. So information also helps us do better ministry as well. Do you find that sometimes, um, and this is going to be true of almost any vocation 
uh, scientific or otherwise, do you find times that you, that uh, the door is open or you have a, a venue or an opportunity to at least express your faith or share your faith? Um, yes. Now, while people are understandably needing to slip out, I would like one of my little helpers to put a stack of these in the back because as you leave, and I please don't leave unless you need to, but these are, this is an image of a beautiful nebula, Westerland II, with the stars and the ionized beautiful gas. You can read about it on the back, and so I hope this will inspire you. So when you do leave, feel free to pick up one of these on your way out and take it as my gift to you, okay? Now, what happens in science is typically... Um, people are not walking through the halls of the science building discussing whether or not there's a God, okay? What happens is people are doing their work. It's usually tedious, uh, sometimes can be tedious, very focused. So when I told you that my study was, the, was star formation in interstellar clouds, that is true. But what I studied was how the ammonia molecule within these clouds has certain transitions from one energetic state to the next and how you map that out. People spend their entire career studying certain obscure molecules in certain obscure blobs of interstellar dust to try to understand the dynamics of these processes. Not very inspiring on that small scale, but an important piece of the bigger picture so most scientists are studying very small but important small pieces of the puzzle and are talking with each other about how to advance that knowledge, that piece of knowledge. The chance to talk about the bigger picture um, and our personal lives and faith often takes years of building relationships with one's colleagues and getting to know them on a personal level. And then that does happen, um, often off-site, you know, in the home, at the at the at, on the field trip or or in the in the restaurant whatever, um, and in this way people have come to know that I think what we're talking about right t tonight is very important part of my life. Um, they want to see if it meshes well with the quality of science I do, you know. So that's kind of a little challenging, right? Yeah. Um, they want to know um, the same thing everybody wants to know, um, you know. Why is there if, there, if God exists, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world, right? That's a question that not just scientists have. That's a question that everybody has. And in fact, it's been my observation that most people who use science as kind of a, um, a defense against religion, if you will, and try to set up an argument, people who are, um, whether they are scientists or not, and usually it's people who are not scientists who use science as an argument against religion, by the way. Um, when you dig down into it, it's not really science for most of these people that, that causes them to question or doubt the existence of God. It's some personal thing in their life. They're a bad experience with religion or a bad loss in their life that they're struggling with. So in that sense, getting to know some people on a personal level provides for much more meaningful interactions, testimonies of faith, and hearing from others, their experiences, and having that impact my life as well. A couple of science questions, and then, and then we'll be done. Okay. Uh, really great pictures of the nebula. I mean, those were cool. The crab nebula, the horse head. So if you were in the nebula, would it be like you were in a fog bank, or would it be so dispersed that you wouldn't really be able to notice it, or is it somewhere in between? That's a great question. <laughs> um, 
I think it depends on what kind of eyes you are wearing. Remember, I told you different kinds of telescopes see different kinds of wavelengths of light. And so, you know, if you had had, if you put on your, your filtered glasses so that you basically could could hone in on certain precise frequencies of light, you might see this kind of colorful haze all around you. But for the most part, these read interstellar space, even if it's got a cloud of gas or dust, it's very diffuse, uh, a pretty good vacuum, even if it's there. And so you might not see anything at all. It's much better to be outside where you have along what you call a column density. You actually can see, you're looking through the whole column of stuff that has a bigger impact on what you can see than if you're in the middle and you don't have as, as, as much of a column of material to look through. So it's easier to see it from the outside is my guess. So Jimi Hendrix was an astronomer. You're going to have to tell me the reference here. Purple haze. Oh, purple haze. Got it. Okay. All right. So um, last question. Are there giant spaces that are just basically empty? And if so, what what would be the reason for that? So there are, um, it depends on what you mean by empty, all right? So so empty is is relative, so all of space is pretty empty, all right? But um, there is, even the empty space in our own galaxy, a lot of times there's what we call the interstellar medium, which sometimes you can only see and so if, you've, if it's backlit in the sense that you, if you look at it, you see nothing. But if you look at a background bright thing like a quasar, which is a, ver- a galaxy with a really bright center, and that light comes through the interstellar medium to get to you, some of that light will be absorbed by that wispy material, wispy gas, and you see the, absor- the, the, the wavelengths of light from the background thing that are getting eaten up on the way. And that's how you know there's something there. But between galaxies, there's something called the intergalactic medium, which is there, but very, very wispy. There are regions where there are lots of galaxies, and there are regions where there are very few. We call them voids. They're not completely voids. There's this intergalactic medium, but it's very wispy. Why is the stuff the way it is? Well, the way we think, the way it looks now is because... At the very burst of creation itself, I mean, to me, one of the most amazing things that we've discovered um, in, in, at least in, in my lifetime, uh, in the last few decades, is the cosmic microwave background radiation. Anybody, anybody heard this term? Um, it turns out that a century ago, there was a big debate about whether, um, well, it, within the last century, there's been debates about whether the universe had a beginning or not? Has it always been here in steady state? And some scientists really felt that the steady state theory was the right way to go. Some scientists felt like there was enough evidence that our universe actually had a beginning and has changed over time. Well, the smoking gun finally came um, when one of the predictions was actually detected. And one of the predictions was that if our universe had a beginning, an energetic beginning, there should be leftover radiation from that filling the universe in every direction. And that background radiation was detected a few decades ago. And then in subsequent years, that d- the detections of this, the mapping of this has become more refined. And so we not only see this cosmic background radiation that basically tells us that our universe had a spectacular beginning about 13.8 billion years ago, but that little pockets within this are not all the same temperature. And as the universe has expanded, 
the cooler spots were able to enable solid atoms and things to form quicker, and then those cre created the hub for what eventually became clouds of gas, dust, stars, and galaxies. So the reason we have some regions with galaxies and some regions without is an outworking of some of the very beginning of the universe, the, the basic distribution of that initial burst of energy in the universe, and I think that's fascinating as well. We can actually compare the measured background radiation with the measured distribution of galaxies and voids and make a distinct correlation, which I think is fascinating. And by the way, most of the matter in the universe we can't even see. We call it dark matter, but we see its gravitational effects. So. The, um, it's interesting you say that uh, there's been a scientific debate is the universe eternal, or has it been created a time in which it originated? And now scientists say, uh, it's finite. It had a, uh, The ancient Greeks, uh, the philosophers, had the very same debate, but they came to a different conclusion. By and large, the, the, the Greek philosophers across the board believed the universe to be eternal, which was one of the great challenges uh, that Greek philosophy presented. And, and here still the, uh, uh, the, the, Christ the early church fathers said, well, Genesis still says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that's an interesting thing that we're now science uh, is more in agreement than the uh, Hellenistic philosophers. This has been, I, I can Let me, could, could I say one more thing about sure. that? Because I have to. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's an ongoing conversation, though, because we can't leave it at, wow, you know, uh, creation wins because the universe had a beginning. Because now there's the understanding that it's quite plausible, at least theoretically, that there are other universes um, popping off. It's called the multiverse theory, all right? It's, it's physically possible. It's mathematically possible. And so then you have to say, well, maybe there's been an eternity of multiverses popping off. Each one of them has its beginning, but it, the whole ensemble has a, you know, where did that come from? And so that's just one step back. Then you have to say, well, why, is there, why are there the physical conditions that would enable a multiverse? And so that gets into that capital W kind of why. And that's where I, I tend to think that Scripture may not be the best tool to answer these types of specific questions because the, the, the Scripture tells us that whatever is, God is responsible for, and God is responsible for time itself. And so... Time itself may not have always been the way we think of it now. And so, so while our universe does seem to have a beginning, there may be other universes. And so we have to be able to incorporate that into our humble reverence toward a God who's more amazing than we can even imagine. So there you go. Like I said, I could geek out on this all night. <laughs> uh, show, help, join me in showing our appreciation to Dr. Watson.